Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. On January 26, 2023, the Dallas Jewish Conservatives hosted a town hall with Chris Salcedo of Newsmax, who interviews Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. All righty, so let's get things started. So kicking things off tonight is a dear friend. He's also the founder and president of Inspire Buzz and Gideon 300 and was a co-founder and executive producer of two award-winning Angel Studios original TV series. Currently, he produces the Tuttle Twins, which is the number one crowdfunded kids project of its time, and his work in conservative faith-based media has been profiled by media outlets all around the world. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to our friend, Matthew Faraci. Okay, guys, I'm from the state that makes Texans look like a bunch of squishy liberals. Any guesses? Oklahoma, baby. That's right. So I challenge you, make Texas Oklahoma. Okay, so um, we're very excited tonight to have two, first of all, just to do a live podcast. I think, does anybody else think watching a live podcast is really cool? Okay. Really? I'd like a little more Southern Baptist, please. Could we get some? Okay. Thank you. Uh, so, so first of all, uh, in the arena this evening, the one, the only, the liberty-loving Latino, Chris Sal Sado. Uh, yeah. And um, Chris, of course, has a show on Newsmax. That's a network that's being discriminated against for being conservative by DirecTV. By the way, Chris will, is going to bring that up tonight. Uh, he's got an incredible podcast, Salcedo Storm, which you're going to find out tonight more about, and a radio show. I would encourage you all to go to chrissalcedo.com. chrissalcedo.com. You will not get a discount, but your life will be better materially. Okay? Uh, okay. <laughs> it's free for crying out loud. You know, I don't know. That's Joe Biden's pitch, Chris. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, and then uh, Chris is interviewing somebody I just want to talk briefly about because the, the, the wonder of Mark Meckler is uh, not only that he's a super Jew, but uh, the, fact that, the fact that Mark's not a politician. Mark's not, he's not a, he's, he, he didn't come from a political background. He was a dad running a small business who had enough and helped start something called the Tea Party. Did ever ring a bell? Anyone? Okay. And, uh, and then he decided to sue the IRS for discriminating against conservative groups and won the only judgment against the IRS. What was that, $3 million? $3.7 million against the IRS. Ran, uh, ran parlor for a while when they needed somebody to help keep the ship afloat um, and runs the largest grassroots organization in the country. And that's not a testament to Mark. It is. But what it's more a testament to is that any one of us who has a passion for our country and wants to make a difference can change the world. And Mark is a living example of that. He's my personal hero. And after you hear him tonight, he will also be yours. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Meckler. And... What does that tell us? The fight never ends, right, folks? What did Reagan say? Freedom must be defended again, again, and then again. And that's kind of what the discussion is about tonight. Even, even those 
dare I say, who are, who are not uh, into the Convention of States, and that is a viable option that I believe the Founding Fathers, in their wisdom, gave us for just this time. Uh, we, I think we all have to recognize that there's more that unites us than, than divides us. Folks, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. And we are fine. <laughs> yeah. No. Ouch. That's a pretty solid heckle, I'm just saying. Yeah. I can, uh, I can testify that uh, that man is a fake Catholic. I can de- definitely that. But the, the fact that there's a lot more that unites us in our cause of liberty than divides us, and that's how the other side succeeds, is the, the division they're sowing everywhere. And a United States of America is their worst enemy. And I think we got to start at that point. Yeah, and I, I also just want to say it's, it's super interesting to be sitting with you in particular because you and I go back to the earliest days of the Tea Party movement together, and we've crossed paths over the years numerous times. And honestly, there aren't that many people that I know who were in that fight in the very beginning are still in it with us. And so it's, it's an honor to sit next to somebody who I just know, because I've been through the wars too, is a warrior. I mean, you, you're carrying the scars of 12 or 13 years of intense political warfare, people attacking you, people trying to cancel you, phases of your career, you know, different outlets... That's not easy stuff. And I think one of the things that people see when they see somebody like you and, you know, you're up on the big screen and you got multiple outlets now and you're doing all this stuff and, you know, you're what would qualify for a famous person. It's like, wow, overnight success, right? And overnight success is the result of literally thousands of hours of being in the war and being in the trenches and grinding it out. So I would just say, give it up for my good friend, Chris Salcedo, who's somebody who's been making it happen for over a decade in this war. Show of hands, how many of you folks are parents in here? I, um, it's a true story. I walked in, I, I went to my, uh, my churches. They have a fundraiser called the Dinner Dance. They raise money for the school, the Catholic school. And all my kids are out of that particular school. And I, watching all these new parents coming in, saying to them, oh, you have no idea what you're in for. And then remembering me in that position, all those years we're talking about. So I came home, and my oldest, who started off in this school, was sitting with her boyfriend, and I, and, and I was thinking this God's honest truth. I would trade all the rest of my days that I have left if I could have one more day with you asleep on my chest as a baby. And that's why we're all doing what we're doing. It's why the alarm that you have, why you've given up so much, why we all are worried, it's for them. It's not, it's not for what's happening in the country today. It's the world we're going to leave them. And that's what drives all of us, I think. I can't believe you started by making me cry. <laughs> you know, look, I have the same... You know, we live the same life. Essentially, my daughter is 23 years old. Uh, she's my baby. She just got married. And I feel exactly the same. I look at her and I think, whatever. I, there's nothing I wouldn't do for those kids. My son is 27. Uh, he's a Marine. He came out. He's now a lawyer with America First Legal. 
I, there's nothing I wouldn't do for those kids. And I feel exactly the same as you. I look at those photos of them. We were talking about this before I came in and I look at the photos of, of my daughter as a little kid. We were just going through some old photos and I saw a picture of my daughter at about two, three years old with her grandfather, my dad. And I looked at that picture and I said to my daughter, Lucy, my dad, grandpa is the same age in that picture as I am now. I mean, it's just, so you look at that and you know the value that you put into your family, like how important that is to you. And I think there, there was a period of time in our history where we could take for granted that we had a good life, that we were free people, that the country would continue to exist. And in fact, our generation hasn't had to fight for the country very much. And this is part of the problem. This is why I think we've become largely as a society when it comes to protecting liberty and protecting the idea of what America is and her ideals, we've become somewhat soft. And we're not necessarily, I say this we broadly, now I'm not speaking to you in the room because you're here and in the fight, but we're not willing to do what it takes in the fight. And, you know, I want to start as we start the night off to tell you it's not easy and nothing about it is going to be easy. Nothing really good and really valuable has ever come by easily. It requires sacrifice. And if you go all the way back, not just to the founding of this country, but pre-founding, go back to the pilgrims and coming across an ocean and half of them dying when they get here and founding a society based on the same values that we value today. These are people who understood hard work and sacrifice and duty. And duty means you do things that are not necessarily easy for you. They're not necessarily pleasant for you. You don't necessarily want to do them, but you do them because you know they're the right thing to do. And someday, somewhere, somehow they might benefit somebody else. And I think that sense of duty is something that I know Chris has and I feel very deeply, and it drives what we do every day. And I think people see you in the limelight and me in the limelight and think, man, that's so cool you get to do it. And it is cool. Like, it is, it's a great thing, and I feel very privileged to do what I do, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of sacrifice. And just like you guys sacrifice to do what you're doing for your families, there's a grind. And when you see people in the public eye, and I think this is important, I, I go pretty gently often on people in the public eye because I know how brutally they get attacked. I know how people, the higher they climb, the more people try to tear them down. You hear stories about people in the media about the quote-unquote bad things they've done. I don't believe any of that stuff. Unless I know it to be true myself, I discount all of it. Because I know what people say about me. I know what they say about people like Chris. And so it's, we are willing to sacrifice. I'm not complaining about it, but we're all going to have to sacrifice a lot together if we're going to save the country. As this is how I know we're on the right track, because listening to you, some of you may be familiar with Ronald Reagan's 1964 speech that really launched his political career. And there was a, a part in this speech, the time of choosing speech, where he referenced should should Moses have committed to leaving the people of, of Israel in Egypt under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? He said that the, the patriots at, at Bunker Hill were not fools. The patriots that started off this country were not fools. They knew there was something they were fighting for. And I think it goes to the, the level of which you're talking about there needs to be a commitment, a, a re, and in our case, a recommitment to this country uh, that generations in the past have never been unwilling to pay a price. And I, I just pray every night that this generation, Generation Z, the, 
um, the the millennial generation, my generation, Generation X, and subsequent generations will will remember that America is worth fighting for and sacrificing for what we stand for. So, look before we before we get into the nuts and bolts, did you want did you want to talk about? Because I think this is a microcosm of the fight. What's happening at Newsmax? Yeah, I would love to. So if we can start by reversing roles, I'll interview you if that's Please. okay. Shoot. So how many of you saw that Newsmax got canceled off DirecTV? You guys see this? Uh, really an outrageous thing to happen. I was, it actually, when I saw it, Chris, it took my breath away. Like, I mean, I know you guys kind of had some sense it was coming. I had no idea this was coming. And when it happened, it was just a huge blow to see that happen I know it's a major distribution channel for you. Uh, there's talk of cancel culture, and they're canceling conservatives, and that's the reason they're doing it. What I'd love to do, to the extent you can and you're able, and I think this is important, you told me some things out there I hadn't heard before when we were talking before. What happened? Like, how did this actually come to be so people know the truth and not just what they're hearing in the media? I'll give the Cliff Notes version. Uh, that How many of you have ever said... How does MSNBC continue to make a whole bunch of money and pay all their anchors a whole bunch of money when nobody's watching them? How many have asked that question? Yeah, for sure. The great Rush Limbaugh, God rest his soul, uh, gave us a primer on exactly how this all happens. And if you think about it, the business model is this. How many of you have cable? Yeah, I do too. You pay fees, right, to the cable networks. Cable networks got to put content on their channels, right? So some of these cable channels choose to pay some of those fees that the folks are paying to get that content on their channels. So that's how it works. That's how CNN, nobody can, nobody's watching, but Don Lime gets paid, you know. To, you guys know why I call him Don Lime? Yeah, because he, gets, he used to get soused every New Year's Eve on... on uh, uh, you know, on tequila, that's what we call, we don't call him Don Lemon anymore, we call him Don Lime. <laughs> True story. Anyhow, um, so that that's the foundation. So when Newsmax was just coming into being about five years ago, didn't have very many viewers. My, Newsmax is new to the scene, and sometimes I've been working there for a while, so sometimes I forget that we haven't always been at this level. So, so when you're wanting more folks to see you... When, you you were basically saying, okay, we're a, we're a startup, we're brand spanking new, uh, we'll give you the content for free, and you give us the eyeballs, the potential eyeballs. In this particular case, back then it was closer to 17, 18 million people on DirecTV. They've lost about 7 million folks at DirecTV over the last couple of years, for obvious reasons. <laughs> but, so... Something happened to Newsmax between the, the initial time when the agreement was signed and until today. And there was a little something called the 2020 election when Fox News decided they would prematurely call Arizona for Beijing Biden. And when they did so, there was something I've never seen before, which was a social media tidal wave that sent a lot of eyeballs to Newsmax. And though since then, we have been the fourth most watched cable news channel in America. So the game changed. We were no longer, uh, it was no longer acceptable 
to say, well, we wanted recognition, at least my bosses did, wanted recognition. Hey, we're the fourth largest now. Some recognition. In particular, since you're going to pay 22 liberal channels, lots and lots and lots of money to stay on your district. Can you, can you just give us a skosh, a smidgen, a little, a little itty-bitty piece of that? And DirecTV, through their parent company, AT&T, said, no, we will never, ever pay you, conservatives, ever, ever. And that's their idea of good faith, a negotiation in good faith. <laughs> to which my boss was like, wait, really? Really? And by the way, here's the kicker, folks. The liberal channels don't have the audience that we have. Yet they're getting paid buku bucks. So that's the genesis of the disagreement. And Newsmax isn't asking for to be, they're not even asking for fairness. Like, just you know, pay us what you pay CNN. We're not, we're not saying that. Just pay us what, just a smidge, a, sm- a skosh, in recognition that we're now the fourth-watched cable news channel on, on the air. Please. And DirecTV, through their parent company, AT&T, said no. And did you know, did you have advance notice that they were going to cancel distribution? I, I can't speak to what my bosses knew. I didn't know. I'm, I'm just too busy doing our, the Chris Salcedo show every day to to be burdened with that kind of stuff. So I, this was, this was a, a little uh, surprising to me. But then again, I do know the woke culture that is in corporate America these days. The same people that told you that you've got, you can't keep a job uh, unless you get the jab, unless you let your company interfere with your medical decisions. So I knew the culture was out there. I just didn't expect it to manifest in this way. So now I know they've brought on a very small new kind of startup conservative network and they've added that channel them to a channel on direct TV. And now their argument's going to be, Hey, we didn't cancel conservatives. This has nothing to do with conservatives. Right? So they, they're trying to backfill that so they can say that they're not anti-conservative. Right. And that, that, that's not, that's not the point. The, the, the point is, so, so basically they've replaced uh, Newsmax from five years ago with another startup to say, see, we don't, we don't hate you conservatives. We'll let you come on for zero. So really, what, what the discrimination here, and what you all have to know is your taxpayer dollars are going to AT&T. AT&T does government work. AT&T takes your money, I'm talking billions of dollars in contracts, while they're pledging to not treat conservatives fairly. And that's, that's the key. What people have got to understand, it's not about, it, it's about, hey, can you come up from zero <laughs> and, and at least pretend that, that, that conservatives uh, ha, ha, treat us fairly business-wise the way you would treat your liberal friends? And that's all Newsmax is asking. Yeah, so the reason I think this is important to talk about is you're not going to, what Chris just said, you're not going to hear in the media, generally speaking, and what it's going to be is it's going to be some high-level thing, and people are actually not going to have any idea what they're really talking about. People who know nothing about the situation are going to comment on it. And on one side, on the, on the conservative side, you're going to hear something that's not entirely true, which is they're going to say, oh, this is just conservative cancel culture, and we canceled them just because they're conservative. And the reality, what you're hearing here is, yes, there's some truth to that. The key was they'll never give a conservative a dime. 
That was the point. It's not that they, they'll carry a conservative channel as long as they don't have to pay anything for it. They don't have to support it. They don't have to pretend that they actually like it. The second that somebody earns their stripes, they're going to cut them off at the knees. And, and I think that's, I, I would add, and I'm, I'm just surmising here, but I would add, they don't like a, a company like Newsmax being successful, right? I mean, I feel like they're starting to compromise Fox. They've done that, and, and the woke world is starting to compromise Fox. And I say that with all due respect. I have a lot of friends at Fox, but Fox, as you guys know, has compromised their values. It's not like it used to be. And so they see Newsmax coming up very strong, very bold, very conservative, and they want to cut that off at the knees. And I ask the question, why would AT&T want to cancel and silence your liberty-loving Latino? Why would they want to do that? I, I think it's racial. Well, <laughs> that, that, that's, a good, that's a good line, but think about it. What makes white liberals incredibly angry? When, when minority conservatives wander off the, yeah. the liberal reservation, right? Yeah. Because white liberals like to tell us how to think, what to think. They like to tell everybody, frankly, but nothing makes them angrier than Latinos or blacks who are actually conservative. As a matter of fact, Bill Richardson, remember Bill Richardson? The, yeah. I remember, he, he, what, you remember what he said about Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz isn't a real Hispanic <laughs> because he's not a left-wing lunatic. <laughs> that was, that's, what Bill, that's the predicate they're trying to lay down. You, you lose claim to your heritage if you're not a left-wing lunatic. Yeah, so I, would, I, mean, I said it in jest that it's racial, but it actually is racial. In other words, like if you're a person of color, if you're Hispanic, if you're black, if you're Pacific Islander, whatever they want to call you, you're not allowed to be a conservative, and they're going to do everything they can to tamp it down because it's dangerous to their program. Yep. And this dovetails perfectly into our discussion about the Constitution because the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, our first guarantee, every bit as important as the other guarantees inside that Constitution have been bastardized in this country I am seeing things, Mark, that I never thought I would see in my country to where you have these Bond villains over in Davos. If, uh, if the Americans, it's com coming very soon, we're going to be putting hate speech legislation on you. Don't worry, it, it will be okay. Just behave yourselves. It, it, seriously, why, why, do these, why do these all people sound like Dr. Evil over there that are, that are saying... Yes, we're going to have to put guardrails on your speech and not recognizing that's not America. So I think that dovetails perfectly into the conversation you and I are about to have about Convention of States. I think the first point that I'd like to ask you about, which always gets glossed over by those, even who we would consider conservatives and allies, about the Convention of States is that it is a constitutional provision. We call it Article 5 for a reason. Explain. Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting because people who are opposed to this, they claim to love the Constitution, except Article 5 for some reason. So Article 5 of the Constitution is the place where we get the ability to amend that document. And the framers told us that the day would come when we would have to do this. They knew this. In fact, they said about themselves at convention, 
that they didn't believe they had drafted a perfect document. They actually said this. They said, we've done the best we can under the circumstances with what we know now, but we expect that over time people will get wisdom, gather wisdom as people do over the centuries, and they'll figure out ways or things we didn't think about. And so they said that, but the key thing that they said, there's actually something specific that was said at the convention. So September 15th, 1787, to me, for me personally, is the most important day in American history. September 15th, I remember that day better than any other because it's my wife's birthday. And if I don't remember that, that's very bad for me. She's in the audience. Uh, Patty, thanks for being here and supporting me tonight. Um, but September 15, 1787 is the day that Colonel George Mason addressed the men assembled there in Independence Hall. They're drafting the Constitution. They're literally two days from finishing. The 17th is the day that they're done, that they dismiss and go home, the Constitution being finished. And Mason is from Virginia. He stands, he's Madison's, by the way, he's Madison's uh, tutor, mentor, Washington's mentor. He's the guy that brings the Virginia plan to the convention. He speaks, I think, second or third most of anybody at convention. So he's very important at the time. And he stands and he says this. He said, we have a problem with the document we've drafted. We gave the power to Congress to propose amendments, but we didn't give the same power to the people acting through the states. And I'm paraphrasing. I'm not near as eloquent as he was. And he says something like, are we so naive that we believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? And look, I say this, that line all over the country, people shake their heads, people laugh. No, because of course not. We have no record in human history of a tyrant ever waking up one morning saying, you know, I think I have too much power and I need to give some of this away to some other. Y'all come over to the palace and I'll give you some power, right? We've never heard this from Washington, D.C. Literally since the first government in American history, every administration in American history, with the exception of Coolidge, has grown the size and scope of the federal government. So this is not a conservative issue versus a liberal issue. It's not Republican versus Democrat. This is the nature of power. Power centralizes itself. Power brings more power to itself. So when he said that to the convention, I wish we had video. I think they laughed. I think it was a forehead slap. Everybody, oh my gosh, of course we got to give that power to him. What we do know is we have Madison's notes and Madison's notes in that place say something very simple. It's a Latin abbreviation. It's NINCOM and that stands for no comment. Literally not one person said, well, Mason, that's a ridiculous idea. Why do we give that power to states? No argument, no debate, no discussion. And in fact, it's the only provision I'm aware of in the Constitution where there is no debate and it's unanimously adopted. This provision, the second clause of Article 5, which gives you and me and our state legislatures the power to call a convention of states. And again, specifically Madison said, because we might have a tyranny and we might have to do something about that. The Constitution, I have said, was created to stop men like Barack Hussein Obama. The Constitution of the United States was made to thwart men like Mitch McConnell. Tell the story you told me about Mitch McConnell, because there's a process that has to happen with the states, and we'll get into that in a bit. But one of the states in our union, the state of Kentucky, is being prohibited from a participation inside of a convention of states because of a man who's just like Barack Hussein Obama. His name is Mitch McConnell. What happened? Yeah, so, you know, I travel. I go to all the state legislatures, as many as I can every year. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Kentucky. We have great grassroots in Kentucky. 
Last time I was in Kentucky, I was visiting with a bunch of legislators, very supportive legislators in Kentucky. You'd imagine pretty conservative folks, so a lot of support in the legislature. And ultimately, I was told by a couple of legislators, hey, look, here's the deal, Mark. I mean, the problem we have is that Uncle Mitch basically shows up in the legislature once a year. He comes here once a year and visits us. And one of the things he says is that you need to stay away from that Article 5 stuff. And McConnell controls most of the political money that flows through Kentucky. Uh, he's a very powerful political figure. And so he can basically say who's going to get the money, who's not in the caucus when they run for re-election. And I actually didn't believe it, <laughs> to be honest with you. I just thought, nah, that's ridiculous. I mean, that one guy, how's that work? And why is he so against us? And so I, I asked some of our supporters in the legislature, just do me a favor in the caucus meeting. And those meetings, by the way, they're off the record. They're not really allowed to give us details. But I said, I just specifically asked the question about convention of states. And so uh, this, all these people have to remain nameless, but I had a couple guys call me up and say, the question got asked. He said, absolutely not. You stay away from that Article 5 stuff. So, you know, it's very difficult for us to move convention of states in Kentucky because Uncle Mitch is offended by the idea of giving up any power from Washington, D.C. and having it even go back to his home state. Consider that Mitch McConnell just passed an, a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill by knifing every Republican who's in the House of Representatives in the back. Consider that Mitch McConnell did not have to do that. The Democrats had already taken two bites at the reconciliation apple for the last fiscal year. There was nothing that was motivating Mitch McConnell to do a year's worth of funding, fully funding 87,000 goose-stepping armed IRS agents to come after all of us. There was nothing that uh, said that they would send millions of dollars, nothing that, ha that forced him to, to put in a provision that sent millions of dollars down to the border to turn our border agents into Walmart greeters prohibiting, not, not saying please don't do that, prohibiting any of that money be used for border security. That was done to us by Republicans. By 18 Senate Republicans, one by the name of John Cornyn. So the same man who wants unchallenged power to knife Republicans in the back, Mitch McConnell, is the same man who's saying, don't go near convention of states. It's jowls flapping his, in the wind and stroking his three chins. The Constitution of the United States was, was drafted to temper the worst instincts of man with a recognition, and you touched on this, and I want you to expand on it. The worst instincts of man, government, is a necessary evil, and the founding fathers of this country knew and understood that. So they put guardrails in place, and since its passage, leftists have been trying to undo those protections. And the Convention of States seeks to restore those protections. Yes? Yeah, you know, I hear this all the time, and I it makes me laugh. They say, oh, well, you want to rewrite the Constitution. And uh, I love the Constitution. I've got a beautiful handwritten calligraphied version of it on the wall in my office. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't consider that a sacred document, but it is as close to sacred as you can get. 
And it's, it is our collective vision, our governing document for what this country should be. And when I look at that one on that wall, uh, along with the Bill of Rights, I don't want to change that. Like, I think it's a beautiful, wonderfully crafted document with a lot of balance in it. The founders understood <coughs> both human nature and history, all systems of government that had ever come before them, all the way back into biblical times. And they crafted something never seen before, a system of federalism uh, based on a constitutional republic. By the way, federalism, as an aside, is a system of government designed for people who hate each other. I know that sounds kind of weird, but the reality is the founders didn't like each other, right? They were at each other's throats until the American Revolution, at which point they had an existential threat. So they get together to get engage in this fight. And after the fight, they still don't like each other. So they form the Articles of Confederation, which is a government that says, I dislike my fellow colonies now states so much, I'm not going to give them any power over anything ever under any circumstances, Right. And they distrust each other. And so as a country, we come out of the Articles of Confederation and we gather in Independence Hall and we say, we understand human nature. We don't trust each other. We don't like each other, but there are existential threats that require us to work together. And so they create this government, which is based on federalism, this idea that even though we don't like each other, there are things we have to do together. And so we're going to make sure those things are very limited. 17 enumerated powers in the original constitution everything else left to the people and the states. Today, I would posit that it's the exact opposite. The power pyramid has been flipped upside down. Uh, the states were, by the way, supposed to have unenumerated and unlimited power, the states and the people. Today, the federal government, instead of having 17 enumerated powers because of the Supreme Court and their interpretations of that beautiful, eloquent document, have something like, I don't know, 17 million powers, right? Essentially, infinite powers. And I get asked this all the time, why do you want to change the Constitution? And, and I ask people, what Constitution are you referring to? And that usually gets a puzzled look from people. And I say, you know, in the United States, we have two actual Constitutions. We have the one that you and I know and love, the one that's on my wall and your wall. A lot of you carry pocket Constitutions. And, and that one, we understand, we can read it, we know what it means, and it was written for normal people. And then we have the one that the government considers the U.S. Constitution. And most people don't know this, but you can literally go to the government publishing office today, the GPO, and you can order the Constitution of the United States of America. That's what it's called. And the first time I saw this on their website, I was stunned. It's $130 or something. I thought, what is this, a gold leaf pocket constitution? What it actually is when you get it is it's 3,000 pages roughly. It's about that thick. It weighs over 10 pounds. It's every case ever issued by the United States Supreme Court telling us what your pocket constitution means. And that's the document under which the United States government operates. And so when people say they want to preserve our constitution, I want to preserve the one that's on my wall, but that one that's 3,000 pages, no, I want to cut that back down to size and throw the rest of it in the shredder. So that's what we're doing. Founding fathers of the country created the Constitution to be understood by we the people. They didn't create it. How many of you have been tempted to believe from time to time, well, Constitution is just way too advanced for me. I got to go to a lawyer to tell me what the Constitution says. That was not the document that was created. It was designed to be understood and known by we the people. First three words of that document. We, the people. 
That was the emphasis. That was the point. You are the point. So let me address by bringing back the aforementioned Democrat enabler, John Cornyn. In their infinite wisdom, the genesis of our problem, these people we send to Washington, D.C., changed the Constitution of the United States. How many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Turley? Jonathan Turley is a liberal, a classical liberal, I would say, but he is devoted to the Constitution of the United States. He's devoted just as much as you and I. And he talks about a Newtonian balance that the Founding Fathers meticulously constructed the Constitution to have, as Mark was talking about, our government fighting each other. Why? So they can leave us alone. Have our government fighting each other so they can leave us alone. The brilliant individuals in Washington, D.C. changed your Constitution so that we would elect senators by popular vote rather than being appointed by their state legislatures. And because of that fact, we have John Cornyn that stabbed every Texan in the back with that disgraceful omnibus vote. When he, John Cornyn looked at all the damage being done to our state by illegal immigration, Latino communities being destroyed by illegal immigration, and John Cornyn said, I'm going to vote for that because I love Mitch. Couldn't give a crap about you Texans. I love Mitch. Mitch is my boy. If the Constitution remained the Constitution of the United States, he would never have been able to do that because he would have been loyal to his state rather than loyal to his damn political party. Yeah, absolutely. Speak to that. Yeah, how many, how many of you are familiar with, and don't be embarrassed if you're not, how many of you are familiar with the 17th Amendment? Okay, so there's a bunch of people who aren't, and I think that's super normal. You know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and when I came out of law school, I was unfamiliar with the 17th Amendment. And, I mean, that, as an aside, as lawyers, when you go through law school, you never read the Constitution. That might be a shock to people who aren't lawyers. First time somebody asked me that, I was kind of insulted by the question. Did you actually read the Constitution of law school? I thought, of course I... No, we never did. <laughs> What you read is what judges, justices have said about the Constitution over the last 240 some odd years. You don't read the Constitution, you don't read Federalist Papers, so you don't understand what this was all supposed to mean. And what happened with the 17th Amendment is back in the, in the late 1800s, there was something called the Progressive Farmers Movement that started. And this is really the genesis of today's progressive movement. And they had some good intentions, uh, the road to hell, as they say. Uh, so they had some good intentions. And what their opinion was about senators, and this actually happens in 1913, it builds to there. What their opinion was of senators was that the people who got elected senators or who got appointed as senators by the state legislatures were people who were rich and powerful and connected. Those people were the only people who were going to get appointed by the state legislature as senators. And so they decided that the fix would be to have the people of the states directly elect the senators, which over the last, uh, you know, since then, since 1913, has resulted in people getting elected to the Senate because they're rich and famous and connected. And powerful, <laughs> yeah. So, but here's what it broke, and here's what they didn't see, is what a senator's job was prior to 1913 was the easiest job in the world. Their job was to say no. In Washington, D.C., Washington would propose to take power away from the states, and the senators would say, no, you can't do that. That's our purview. That belongs to the states. You're not allowed to do those things. 
And the states would tell them what to do because the state legislatures appointed them. When we disconnected that and we started directly electing our senators, I mean, to most of us, that just seems like, well, that's democracy, right? We, we elect people. That seems good. The problem is the senators became loyal to Washington, D.C. instead of to their states. And if you think about it, this is the worst thing that senators do, in my opinion, that shows how this got broken Senators do these things where they vote for unfunded mandates. You guys have heard of that, right? And so that means DC says, hey, we've got an idea. I got a scheme. We're going to make all the states do this stuff and they'll have to pay for it themselves. They got to do it like we say they got to do it, run the program like we say they got to run the program, but they're going to have to tax everybody and pay for it. So they'll take the blame and we get exactly what we want. And then the senators vote for that. Now, imagine your senator coming home prior to 1913 and saying to their bosses in the state legislature, hey, by the way, I got this great news for you. I just imposed like $150 million liability on your state, and uh, you guys get no say over it. You get no credit for it. It's going to be terrible for you guys, and that's what I just voted for. And in the famous words of Donald Trump, what would have been said by the legislatures back then was, you're fired. And now it doesn't happen because now they're beholden to D.C. and they're not beholden to their state but legislatures. But wait, we're told that the only way to amend the Constitution is to trust the very same people who have put us in this dire position to begin with, that the solution to the problem is actually those who have created the problem. Yeah. And th I think that is... Those, those who are invested in the status quo, uh, I think, have, have failed to recognize, like the Republican Party has failed to recognize the descent of the Democrat Party into socialism and communism and to left-wing extremism. I think there's a failure by even some on our side to, sit, to, to, to look up and recognize where we are in reality as opposed to theory. In theory, saying that electing senators directly, it sounds really good in theory. But it turns out the founding fathers were a hell of a lot smarter than a lot of the people that, that came after them because these men were enlightened. These, in, they studied human nature, and they created the document to thwart the worst impulses of man. And does it get any worse impulses than Barack Obama or Mitch McConnell or Joe Biden? So, and guys, by the way, you guys give us the, the, the high sign about when we're supposed to start taking questions, okay? Because I, I have no idea what time it is. Um, hey, Chris and I, we talk for a living. We can go all night. Folks, we'll, we'll, seriously, we'll be here till midnight if, we, if uh, somebody doesn't tell us, hey. You know, I do want to jump in on that, Chris. That, this is important because we get people who oppose Convention of States and they say, look, all 27 amendments have come through Congress and if we're going to do it, we should just do it that way. And I think you're correct. In essence, what they're saying is they don't understand what moment we live in. And they actually expect that something good is going to come out of Washington, D.C. There's actually been some interesting theater going on in Washington, D.C. lately, where you have some D.C. politicians talking about, well, we're going to get a vote on term limits, or we're going to get a vote on a balanced budget amendment. You know, we did in, uh, I believe it was 1982, 82. when there was a vote in Congress. You should look this up if you want to be completely appalled. Uh, I, I would recommend you do it on an empty stomach. And you see this vote take place in Congress to pass a balanced budget amendment, meaning that that amendment would just go out to the states for ratification. And they defeat it. And when they do, cheers break out on the floor of Congress. 
This is how much they hate you. This is how much they love unfettered spending. This is how much they believe that they are wise enough and good enough and just enough to have infinite reach into your pocketbooks to put you in debt and your children and your grandchildren and their children in debt, that they would cheer when they defeat the idea of just sending a balanced budget amendment out to you guys and seeing if you want it, like allowing you to approve it or not. Well, there was a a subtext to that because this was out of Carter coming into Reagan and the country was spending a lot of money. We needed a balanced budget amendment. So the Convention of States built up momentum back then. Do you know how many states they you know how many states they came close to, to getting a to getting a convention of states called? Two states shy. Yeah, thirty two out of the necessary thirty four. The people were that ticked off at government. So what did government do? They put on a nice little dog and pony show to pretend now. Correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding was, and I, and I may have this wrong, that the Congress did pass it, but that it was adjudicated by the courts as not being constitutional. No, what they actually did, so they didn't pass the balanced budget amendment. They passed out of that. Some of you guys might be old enough, I am, to remember this. They passed the graham Redmond Spending Act. Oh, that was it. And so what they did is they said, look, we know everybody's really upset, and so we're, gonna, we're not going to do this balanced budget thing because then you might really be able to stop us from spending. We're going to create a pretend act that sounds like we're really doing something. We'll placate you children with bread and circus. And Graham Redmond never did anything to help balance the budgets. No. And so they, they passed it. It was never effective. It was kind of like Reagan's amnesty. It never stopped illegal immigration. It fostered more of it. And now here we are, $31 trillion in debt. And it, it was designed to kill the effort that Mark has been Absolutely. championing all these years. They, they did it to, to basically stop you from taking away their power. Yeah, and I want to add, and this is really important, historically, the same people, and literally some of them, the same humans that are still alive today, that oppose that, this is uh, 1982, the entire debt is $4 trillion. That's a lowball fantasy of ours today, right? The entire debt is $4 trillion, and today we're at $31 trillion, is that right now? $32 trillion. Those people, some of whom were out front today, who call themselves conservatives, we can thank them personally for $27 trillion in debt. Because we came close. We almost got across the finish line. And now today, those same people are trying to stop us for the same reasons. And, and this is really important to note. This is There is an alignment between people that I would call on the fringe right who are opposing this, uh, specifically by name, John Birch Society, some involved in Eagle Forum. I have some good friends in Eagle Forum, but they're opposed to this. And they are saying the same exact things and using the same exact talking points as George Soros, Common Cause, Center on Budget and Policy Party, La Raza, Planned Parenthood, Hillary Clinton. And, and let me just generalize. Every America-hating, communist, baby-killing, fascist, totalitarian organization in the United States of America using the same talking points as groups like John Birch Society and Eagle Forum. Yeah. I, and, and see, for me, can everybody tell me what is the word that describes doing something over and over and over again and then getting a, and expecting a different result? What do they call that? Insanity. Insanity. If something's not working, it's time to change it, right? And look, uh, over 200 years, our Constitution withstood 
the worst impulses of man. But can we look at what's happening today and say that it's doing so now? I, I, I think by any measure, anyone looking at the country, now look, I think there's a fair point, and let's address this. This government was meant for a just and moral people. That as, and, and even how many of you, when Trump was elected, we said, thank God, okay, let me go back to my nine to five, let me go back living my life, he's got this. I got to admit, even I said, oh, thank goodness. He's he going to. no idea. Well, see, and that's the point. You get, you win a battle, that's when the support needs to come in. That's, you don't take, the other side doesn't take their foot off the gas pedal. No. They win a battle and they go, and they're full speed ahead. Yeah. Address the, 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 the fact that maybe Convention of States doesn't address perhaps the bigger problem, which is an engaged, informed population. Yeah, and I think this is really important. You know, one of the things we talk about at Convention of States all the time is it is going to take essentially a political revolution, which is what we're working on. Not a, not a violent revolution, not an insurrection, but a political revolution to restore the country. It's going to take a reawakening, a great awakening politically. But it's also going to take a great awakening spiritually. Because it is correct that this government was made, and specifically our Constitution was written, for a moral and religious people, and is wholly inadequate, as the founder said, to any other. And that's true of any government for a free people. It requires a good and moral people. It requires an educated people. It requires people, we talked in the beginning about duty and sacrifice. It requires people willing to engage in acts of duty and sacrifice. And so one of the things, and I think a lot of people don't know this about Convention of States, because it's certainly not what we lead with, but Convention of States is an organization that promotes Judeo-Christian biblical values. And some people don't like that. They come in and they look at it like, whoa, I didn't realize we're in for all this Judeo-Christian stuff. And I'm saying if you don't understand that, then you don't understand America. I'm, by the way, I'm not saying you have to be a person of faith to be involved we have people who aren't of faith who are involved in the organization. But if you don't understand that this country was built on Judeo-Christian values, mostly by men and women who are Christian believers, and that, in, that is all through the Bible, it's all through the Declaration of Independence, it's all through the writings of the founders, if you don't understand that that's our history, that's the bedrock, that's the foundation, then we are not going to restore this country. Well, tell me, tell me what other tradition, other than the Judeo-Christian uh the Judeo Christian, uh, Christian Judeo tradition that states we're tolerant of everybody. Believe, don't believe. All religions. I am unaware of any other civilizational culture other than the, the, other than in human history the Judeo Christian tradition that says we welcome everybody to believe, to not believe, to believe whatever they want to believe. That the ultimate expression of tolerance. Tell me where in human history that happens. Yeah, nowhere else. And you know. Any Dennis Prager fans in here, I hope? Yeah. So I'm a huge Dennis Prager guy, and he's a friend. And uh, I've been studying a lot of Torah lately with Dennis Prager. And really incredible, the, he tracks the rise of ethical monotheism. Uh, Judaism is literally the introduction of ethical monotheism into human society. And one of the most extraordinary things about the Jews and Torah, and, and obviously very relevant at a, at a meeting like this, is... Sure that the point of Torah was that Torah is actually for everybody. It's not just for Jews. 
I mean, this was kind of a radical thing. They wanted everybody to live by Torah because they believed that this would create a better world and help you to live a good life and a moral and ethical life. You didn't have to be a Jew. They just were trying to bring Torah to the world to make a better world. And I think that's an incredible thing. So those are our roots. We go all the way back to that as a nation. And the founders completely understood this. By the way, the pilgrims understood this. Right. I mean, the pilgrims based their their government. A lot of people don't know this. Pastor Robinson was their main pastor. He actually didn't make it over to the new world with them. He stayed behind. But he taught them the Israelites' form of government as given to them by God, and that's what they brought to the new world with them. That's that's our heritage as a nation. So as an organization, one of the things we do is we teach everybody servant leadership. We have a book that everybody reads, so it's based on the values of service as taught to us by our faith and how to be a leader by serving first. We ended up out of that a lot of people fell in love with what we were teaching. Thousands of people have taken this course. So we took that and we had a bunch of people say, can you do Bible study? We started doing Bible studies. Nice. So, and this is like, you wouldn't know nobody, because it's not right. what we promote, right? Right. We, I never, Yeah. I'm finding something new out myself. I have no idea. So we now have a full-time pastoral mentoring staff of five people. Uh, we have a retired pastor that runs the staff. We so teach cool. servant leadership courses. We have, I can't even, I've lost count of how many Bible studies going on all across the country. We have a what we call a deep dive into, into your faith with Jesus Christ called the Shawl series that people are doing one-on-one. The reason that I tell you this is I want you to understand that this is absolutely a political organization intended on accomplishing something political, but we also understand where all of our blessings come from, where every victory comes from, where our very existence and our very breath comes from, and that's our faith. And without turning to God and restoring that view of the United States of America, we're not going to save this country. Do you know who else knows that? Our enemies. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many of you are reading Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods? Anybody in here? Yeah, you all read the Harbinger. Okay, have you? Have you? No, I'm not familiar with it. Oh boy, um, my staff at Newsmax sends me a a link the other day. The statue of one of our presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, has been taken down in New York and has been replaced by. Um, I'm trying to get the exact verbiage right here, and I don't want to mess this up. But uh, here it is. New York City has taken down statue honoring Teddy Roosevelt and putting up a statue honoring a hideous abortion idol. Margaret Sanger? No, no. <laughs> no, not, not, that, not that hideous one. Uh, Jonathan Kahn and his examination, you know, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with him. Yeah. In his examination, posits that the old gods before, because when you said monotheistic, it's what sparked this. And I'm already, I'm about almost halfway through the book. He posits that the polytheistic gods of old, you know, Jupiter, uh, Zeus, all those, the debauchery that humankind was going through before the enlightenment, before the revelation of a monotheistic God, the one true God, that those gods never went away. They were in exile. And they were, they were thrown into exile by the revelation of the monotheistic God and of Jesus Christ. And they've been waiting in the wings. And through his examination, I won't get into all of it here, folks, he posits that 
this large cultural shift that we've all been seeing in the last five to ten years, and I've never seen anything like it, is as a result of America turning away from God, losing our blessings because of it, and the reassertion of the lowercase g gods coming back in with the same worship, the same symbols. He posits the calf. What do we... What, 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 what is in front of the New York Stock Exchange? So I'm reading this book going, holy moly. And something I would encourage folks to check out, and everything that you just said spurred everything about what, what drove our founding fathers, the Judeo-Christian ethic, and why our Constitution has withstood the test of time and why it's under attack now. Are, are we ready to go to questions? You guys tell me when we're ready. Yeah. You guys ready? You guys yeah, ready for we're questions? on. I, I yeah, think- let me, well, so before we go to questions, there's something I'd like to close with. Sure, please. Okay. Um, you know, we started by Chris and I kind of reminiscing about being in the fight so long. We talked a little bit about our kids and, and why that's so important to us. I know there are a bunch of you in this audience that are have grandkids already, maybe even some great-grandkids. And so we know why we're in this fight. Yeah, I remember... I have a son who's a Marine, he's now a lawyer, and I remember watching him take his military oath. And I never served, so I was not familiar with the military oath. And I remember standing there, Patty was with me, and uh, the two of us, and Jacob, and our daughter Lucy. And it's a pretty serious, kind of somber thing to watch your kid, your baby, take that oath and to sign their life away to the U.S. government, to the U.S. military. And you know that they're putting their life at risk. And watching him with his right hand up and him swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I was blown away. I was, I mean, because I was watching so closely and so intensely. It's one of those technicolor memories, you know? And I remember hearing that and thinking, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that's what the O said, that you were defending the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we were about a year and a half into Convention of States at that time. And I thought to myself, I'm looking at this 18-year-old kid who has no idea anything about the world, really. He's just a kid. And he's willing to sign in blood that he will defend our Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I remember thinking at that moment, I'll never quit. If he's willing to do that, he's just a kid. What am I going to do? What am I willing to give? How committed am I willing to be? Am I as in as he is? And I remember just kind of in my own head and in my own heart taking that oath myself that day that I'm not going to quit. And I can tell you, I know we got a lot of veterans in the audience today, people who have served, and I've had many veterans say this to me, that oath never expires. And for me, as somebody who's fighting to preserve this country, our way of life, to preserve it for my kids and all of posterity. I just, I want you to know, I'm not going to quit. I I took that same oath in my heart as my son did that day. I know Chris, and I know all of you feel this way. We're all in and we're going to fight as long as hard as it takes. Uh, And one last thing, which is I'm hearing people today, and you probably hear this, Chris, people who say, yeah, you know what? It's all over. Like they're rigging the elections and all the stuff they're doing in D.C. and $1.7 trillion, and there's nothing we can do anymore. And I'm really sad to say I've heard some folks in your profession say this, like people on air, like, you know, it's all over and we've lost the country. 
and I'm going to be as polite as I can about what I think. I am going to self-censor a little bit when they say that. My question to people, people in the media and the public eye leaders who say stuff like that is, who in the heck do you think you are? Like you have a responsibility. You have an audience. They're depending on you to lead. They're depending on you to point the way to hope, to point them some chance of victory, some idea that maybe somehow, some way we can save this country. And so when people give up, honestly, it makes me furious and disgusted. And I will tell you for sure that you're looking at two guys up here that will never quit no matter what. When you hear folks say that it's over, just remember three words. We the people. They want you to think it's over. They want you to think it's hopeless. Fifth generation warfare. I know that you all have been hearing that term being thrown around. It's real. It's real. And the thing that defeats that, the things that defeat the Mitch McConnells, John Cornyns, Barack Obamas, and Joe Bidens of the world, we the people, we outnumber them. All right, we're ready. If you guys ready? got questions. Let's give a big round of applause to Chris Lugino and Mark Meckler. If you have a question, please uh, form a line on either side. I see there's a bunch of people on that side. Feel free to come over on this side. And uh, we'll begin with the first question. Yes. Hi. Uh, sorry. I'll just... Okay. Hi, my name is Spencer. Um, great podcast, by the way. Glad to be here. It's my first time even watching you guys. I've never even really heard of you guys. Um, but it was really good, and I'm glad to be here. Um, it's very informative. But one thing I wanted to ask was, um, how come there's no discussion of, like, we the people gaining power over the government by reducing interest rates? By reducing interest rates, putting more money into our pocket so that we have the freedom to be able to do the things that we want so we're not so held down by them. You know, I think interest rates is something that, that should be talked about. Interest rates are really high, and I think the people have kind of lost power due to it. And I wanted to know what you guys think about that. And if interest rates were to lower and the government were to go in the red and the people were to go in the black, would we have these silly discussions? You know, would people have the time to talk about this kind of stuff? Because we would have more because we wouldn't be so tied to high interest rates and just constantly paying for homes that we can't afford and cars we can't afford and interest home, you know, interest and insurances we can't afford. It's all kind of bullshit. Yeah, look, I mean, this is, so Spencer, I apologize, it's a complicated question, right? Because now we're getting deep into economics and I'm not that smart, but I'm going to do my best to simplify it. The reason that interest rates are up is because the government has spent so much money over so long. And so it's not a matter of just lowering interest rates. When they artificially suppress interest rates, which they have done, and they do this, by the way, by the Fed creates what they call easy money policy, right? So they'll literally lend money to banks at what they call the overnight funds rate, and they'll do it at 0%. And if they lend money to banks, if the Fed loans money to banks at 0%, then banks can loan to people at 2%, right? And make a good profit or 3%. And that's how they keep interest rates low. But that is artificial because that's not, they're, it's not real money, they're printing that money. They're creating that money out of thin air, and that causes inflation. And what inflation is, is a hidden tax. And it's one of the things that frustrates me about inflation. We talk about inflation 
and inflation is at 7% or 8% or 9%, whatever the real inflation rate is now. And every time that the government prints a dollar, the dollar in your pocket is worth less, and that's inflation. And there's so much money in circulation that drives the prices up and you've got these artificially low interest rates. So people borrow money that they couldn't afford if interest rates were at market rates. So I'm, I'm not a fan of artificially suppressing interest rates. That's what administrations, not just the Biden administration, but administrations have been doing for a long time. And that's how we end up where we're at. Interest rates are a function of the market and they should freely flow with the market. And it's when they're controlled and artificially suppressed by the Fed that we get into the trouble we're in. So that's as about yeah. as simple of an answer to a complicated question. Yeah, and to bring it full circle, the government spending is a major driver of the interest rates. If government was restrained in its spending rather than spending whatever the hell they want, who somebody's going to have to explain to me where the government got the authority to spend more money than we give it. Because my understanding is we, the people, set the budget, yeah. not, the, yeah. not these people in Washington. And who the hell told you you could go to Washington, I give you $3 trillion in my taxes, and you spend four? Who told you you could do that? Because right now, Congress, the only thing they can do is say, well, I've got my spending priority, and you've got your spending priority. We don't want to debate. We're a bunch of lazy SOBs. We'll just agree to spend everything. Everybody gets everything they want. And, that, and you want to know why your interest rates are so high? It's because we have children in government. And children need rules. And that's why we have to amend the Constitution to put them in their rooms. <laughs> All right, how about over to this side? Hi, I'm Susan Valiant from Arlington. And I had a more of a clarification. Uh, we were talking about the John Birch Society. I know it, it drives me crazy that conservatives go after conservatives. And I've been a part, I've been a district captain since 2013. <laughs> and so uh, we've been dealing with the John Birch Society for many years. We almost lost it in Texas because of them. Uh, we actually got a sunset clause because of them. I know we have problems in Montana and Wyoming because of them. Was it not the John Birch Society that actually was a part of the balanced budget amendment that was in the 18, uh, 1980s? Uh, I don't know that history. I do know that early on in the history of the John Birch Society, not too early, but relatively early on, uh, they pushed something that they called the Liberty Amendment. So I don't think it was the balanced budget amendment, uh, but one of their early leaders and presidents pushed something called the Liberty Amendment. And the Liberty Amendment was, I don't even remember the substance of it, to be honest with you, but it was pushed by them through both processes of Article 5. So they said, you know, they wanted Congress to do it, and they were lobbying Congress to do it, and then they were also lobbying in the state legislatures to do it. So yeah, they were originally in favor of the use of Article 5. And But I will tell you today, and I'm going to just tell you my personal experience, if you say that to a member of the John Birch Society, they will scream at you and tell you that that's untrue. Now, I have all the newspaper reporting on it. It's, it's pre-internet era, but I've gotten all the microfiche and all the newspaper clippings of their president. He was actually a member of Congress at the time, flying around the country and barnstorming for this. So my belief is it's completely disingenuous at this point. This is the biggest fundraising thing that they have, is pretending that they're the only real conservatives in the world. 
And and I have to say, and this is important, you know, there was they they put out some materials on the Constitution that are pretty good, like good educational materials on the Constitution. And I think this is really sad because it's turned into their crusade. And their thing is the only real conservatives in the world are the John Birch Society. I mean, I'll just say it straight up, and they I'm accused of being funded by George Soros. <laughs> Right by the John Birch Society. I mean, this is the kind of stuff they say. They say that we're promoting. I'm in it to promote a one-world government, right, or a, a constitution over the United States and Canada and Mexico. And the level of absurdity—it's just ridiculous. And it's important that we remember the history of the John Birch Society. And the biggest thing I want you to remember is William F. Buckley, the founder of the conservative movement in the United States of America, and Barry Goldwater, one of the first standard bearers for conservatism, and Ronald Reagan, the one and only great Ronald Reagan, chased the John Birch Society out of the legitimate conservative movement because they said, these people are nuts, and they're going to tarnish what conservatism is in the United States of America. we got to get rid of them. And they chased them out. And I think we have to do that again. I think they're a pariah on the conservative movement. Hey, uh, Mark and Chris, real quick. This is uh, I'm making a halakhic ruling here. Um, if you get, there's a there's a pretty big line of people that want to ask you guys questions. So if you could keep your answers, oh, that's very difficult for people. Like I us. know that is <laughs> really. I know. Oh, here comes the rules. Fine. Yes, yes, yes. Fine. I appointed myself a rabbi just to make this ruling. Now I'm going back to normal. <laughs> D- thank you. I had we to have... be the bad guy. Leave it to my Jewish friend to impose the yeah. law. We have Mr. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Uh, Mark, thank you for your voice. I would like for the media to call on Biden and ask him what he would do if the censorship was turned around against the Democrats. How would he condemn that? And number two, besides canceling your AT&T, your DirecTV, let's cancel our Netflix, our Disney Channel. Let's cancel all of that because they donate money to the Democrats. We've got to get them in their money because we are giving them their money, our money, that way, plus donating to our senators. So we're throwing our money away two different ways. Yeah, I think I can, so, I can tackle this one. Uh, the reason why Joe Biden will never be asked that and the reason why Joe Biden never has to worry about that is because our side believes in freedom and free speech. They, the left-wingers live under the knowledge that if we're in power, they're going to remain free. And that's a great comfort to them that we won't impose uh, tyranny on them. But they scare the hell out of me because they take away my freedom when they're in power. So that's the difference between us and them. Yeah, and I think what Joe Biden would say is, uh, well, if, uh, uh, where's my pudding? Do I go this way? This way? And I agree. We should cancel that stuff. And you know, some of it, it's hard to cancel. But uh, I like I dumped my, I had a Disney Plus subscription and I, I liked Mandalorian. I canceled that. Because it's just I'm not going to give them my money anymore. So I agree with that. Hi, my name is John Raymer from Fort Worth. Uh, just want to say Chris Rush is smiling down on you. Uh, I just want your rebuttal on this. I was at the Texas um, Republican Convention, and there was a guy that was talking against the convention about that the, the two-thirds states have to give an application to Congress, and basically he was saying – Congress has to approve it. What? How do you rebuttal that? I mean, this is one of the stupidest arguments that they make, which is they say, they're, and they go further, they say Congress will control it, that Congress is complete control 
of any convention of states. What's the problem then? Yeah. (laughs) Like we want Congress in control, right? Yeah. Well, what's the problem? That's their argument. It should only be Congress. And so it's so stupid because the entire purpose of the second clause of Article 5, as I described the history, was to route around Congress. And so what they're saying is people who allege that they love the Constitution is, by the way, the founders, the framers were so stupid that they drafted a clause in the Constitution that was completely redundant and unnecessary because Congress controls the first way to amend, and then Congress, and then the, the convention then gave Congress a second way to amend, which essentially is the exact same thing. So it's just, it's illogical, circular logic. It, it makes no sense. And it's not true. Yeah. Thank you. Ben, Benbrook, Texas. It's an honor to have a couple of fellow Aztec alumni here uh, it, and have uh, given up the, the nonsense out there. Uh, my, my concern is it took me about 15 minutes to write down 15 states that I don't think will ever get on board. And I didn't even include Kentucky. Is, and so I'm losing hope. I mean, I, I agree. This is the only hope. But I'm losing hope. Tell them what you told me on the podcast. Yeah, like, I mean, I think one of the things is, there's a couple of things here, is since uh, roughly 2010, over 1,200 seats in the state legislatures have flipped from Democrat to Republican. Ever hear that on the news? No. They're never going to tell you that. The states are getting more and more red. We have 30 states with both houses controlled by Republicans right now. Convention of States is on the ground all over the country working in elections in the states to make red states redder, to make purple states red, to make blue states as purple as they possibly can. I want to be really clear when I say this because this is for public record. The organization itself only does that according to whatever the law is in any, any given state and the IRS laws, whatever we can be engaged in to do that. Where we can't, our activists are engaged in it. So, for example, in North Carolina, uh, they had a problem. They really needed a supermajority in the Senate. The Democrats had tied them up. Uh, we were heavily involved in the elections there. I'm proud to say that Republicans have a supermajority there in North Carolina now. We've been doing this all over the country, and there are states where we had absolutely no chance prior to being engaged in elections like we were Montana, Wyoming, Iowa, Ohio, uh, places like this, North Carolina, where we would have had no chance of passing And my point is that the organization is much deeper and much more broad than just calling a convention of states. That we're out there working in the state legislatures to elect good people, to make sure good people are defended. We're working in school board races. We're working in election integrity all over the country. Here in Texas, our efforts in election integrity are very strong and school boards are very strong. And we're doing that all over the country. And so what I would encourage you is that the tide is shifting in the states. And all we ever see in the media is the things that go wrong because that's what the media wants us to see. But there are a lot of victories taking place on the ground. Politics is an incremental game. We are winning, but it's slower than we might like. But in regard to Convention of States, this is what the founders wanted. They wanted it to be slow and difficult, and they wanted you to have to build a national consensus of millions of people over a period of years. Don't lose hope. We're going to get there. What's the update on the timetable? So, I look, I'm trying to be an optimist, so I'm going to say that up front. That's my caveat emptor on this. Uh, but I think that we can pull this off by 2026. That's what I'm shooting for right now. I expect that this year 
we have seven that I think we have a good shot at. My minimum that I'm shooting for this year is four. Uh, four would take us to 23, so that's a nice little slogan of 23 and 23. Yes, sir. Um, you spent a lot of money and a lot of time uh, going across states getting limited-purpose conventions. Uh, convention proponents have done that. I don't think you're living up to your, your standards and your rules for yourself because that's flipped. I don't know why. Maybe you can answer this. Sure. Um, has it been because, like the gentleman said there, you've plateaued on your limited convention? When I want to ask you a question, you said that's flipped. What's, what is that? What's flipped? What's flipped is the convention proponents have now gone to Congress and lobbied for a convention call for any subject, applications on any subject count any unrescinded application. So you're taking in anything, unlimited convention call with your, but you were you know, proposing a limited convention. So it doesn't seem like you're living up to your own rules. Are you, are you saying that I propose this? No, I said convention proponents. So anybody from convention of states that you're aware of that's proposed this? I said convention proponents. Right, so I have no idea who you're talking about. I can tell you for sure that, because you said, I mean, you started, and let's be clear, you started by saying what we've done, what our organization has done, and that we've spent a lot of money, and we've gone state to state. That is all true. Absolutely raised a bunch, spent a bunch doing all of this. And then you said that we've flipped, and we've gone to some open convention thing, but now you're saying it's not that we've flipped somebody else is doing something that we don't know about. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, just, just, just the journalist in me. Give me a name of who's flipped. Yeah. So uh, HCR 101, introduced in Congress, is for amendments on any subject. Right, but who's done that? Right. That's Because that? you're accusing me of no, something no, no, no. or our organization. So I'm just trying to be clear. You said we flipped. Yeah. So if we have flipped... You're referring to me. I'm the CEO and the president of Convention of States, an organization. I represent millions of grassroots activists all over the country. I can assure you, none of us are involved in that. So we, we can say that, that you're not talking about Convention of States action, right? I'm talking about convention proponents. That's what, that's what so, yeah, give me a name. Okay, Jody Arrington of Texas submitted this bill, this resolution. Right, so we don't support that. Are okay, you thank you. Against it, I would be absolutely against that. Hundred percent. Our entire organization would be against it, and I would throw the weight of our organization against that. Yeah. I see. When yeah. See? Assembly. By the way. By the way, Assembly of State Legislatures did a lot of work to pave the way to come up with it, and this addresses the whole idea of a runaway convention uh, concept, which is another one of the scare tactics that I've heard implemented. And a, a guy by the name of Senator Chris Kappinger from Wisconsin did a lot of great work with Republicans and Democrats. Believe it or not, some Democrats out there don't like where this is all headed either uh, as far as the federal government's totalitarian bent. So what they did is they ensured that we would address one amendment to the United States Constitution at a time. It wouldn't be a whole roster full of amendments. They're going to have one proposal, one vote at a time. On each one of the, and it, goodness knows how long that's going to take for one issue, whatever that first issue is going to be. Yep. All right, over here. Okay. Tracy LeBlanc, and I am on the board of directors for CCDF. It's uh, County Citizens Defending Freedom. Yeah. Good job. 
Anyway, and I just wanted to ask you, if someone is not that familiar with Convention of States, what is just a really quick, maybe couple sentences, because people are so misinformed, yep. as you can hear. Obviously, we're a little open to it because we're here, but yep. I've heard a lot of different things. Yep. I'm very supportive. I'm a member. But please, help us talk to people that just don't know. Yeah, I think the most basic thing I can say, I mean, addressing all the objections takes more time, but the most basic thing I can say is we're facing a fundamental question in the United States of America. And what the media wants us to do and what the politicians want us to do is they want the question to be, what should we do? And the reason they want the question to be, what should we do, is because the underlying premise there is that the smart people in Washington, D.C. will decide. And the real question that we're facing is, who decides? That's what we should be asking. Does Washington, D.C. decide for us, bureaucrats thousands of miles away, or do we get to decide for ourselves in our states, in our localities, and as individuals in our families? That's the fight that Convention of States posits. And so if you're somebody who believes that we in the states should be in control of our own destinies, then generally speaking, you're in favor of Convention of States. And if you believe in the status quo, that we should just fight over who in D.C. will get to decide, then you're probably against Convention of States. By the way, the premise, the premise of returning power to the states, to your local government, because your local government are the people who has control, most control over you. Right now, it's flipped. Right now, those people in Washington are doing so much stuff, they're harming you, and you feel it, right? So the idea is to take the power away from those at a far-off capital who you never get a chance to meet. John Cornyn doesn't even take my phone call. I'm sure he doesn't take yours. So the idea is to get the power and the decision-making processes into those who you can see, who can't duck you, right? In some faraway capital, thousands of miles away. You give the power to those in your state legislature, and they are the ones who were supposed to remind the federal government it was the states that created the federal government, not the other way around. Thank you. Hello, I'm Robert Canride from uh, Collin County. Mr. Meckler, you're an awesome spokesman for your cause. Thank you for coming here. And, and I got to tell you that I'm not a lawyer, I'm an engineer. And what I've always done is look at a design and see how might it break so I can fix it. And as I take a look at the Article 5, and maybe you can clarify this for me, I see that Congress does a call, but it's not defined. So I say to myself, if I was Speaker of the House like Nancy Pelosi, and I got this, I would send the call directly to a list of Democratic Party operatives that I picked, right? And then I take a look at the last constitutional convention we had where they walked in the door with the, uh, the Virginia Resolve, which is a brand-new constitution, and they changed the ratification rules from what was in the Articles of Confederation to Article 7 of our constitution, which you can all read, that they counted how many states that were short and they, they removed that list from the number they needed to, to pass. So I, I look and I say, well, the Democrats love national plebiscites. They could have a national plebiscite and give illegal aliens in all the sanctuary cities the right to vote to ratify a new constitution that gets rid of the Electoral College. And please clarify why this nightmare won't happen. There's a lot packed in there. Yes, that's <laughs> So, good, good question, though, man. I, I may have to ask for a ruling from uh, Rabbi Matthew on this. Uh, I'm going to be as brief as I can on this. One of the things really important, the underlying premise of what you said is 
1787 was a runaway convention. I hear this all the time. And, and this is, I got to tell you, this is one of my life's crusades. That's a horrible slander on the framers of the United States Constitution. And it is a slander because it's just blatantly untrue. And people believe this for a long time, but now the research has actually been done. And what we know is if you read the, the, the commissions of the commissioners who actually went to the convention, Rob Nadelson was the first person in the history of the country to do this in the modern era. He went to the National Archives. You know, I picture like National Treasure. He's pulling out the drawer and dusting off the documents. <laughs> Nobody had ever looked at these things. And what the application said is that the commissioners have any and all authority necessary to render the federal constitution adequate. Like, in other words, whatever they want to do is what they have the authority to do. Madison said in Federalist 40, you should look at what, how these people were commissioned. Look at what the authority that the states give them if you want to know what their actual authority was. And we do know because we actually have these, and you could look at them on our website. I've read all of them. So the majority of states that were at that convention had full authority. There were two states that didn't, and neither of those delegations voted. As far as changing the ratification process, the convention itself had no authority to do anything other than make suggestions. They did not change the ratification process. They suggested a change to the ratification process. Under the Articles of Confederation, the ratification process was unanimous for any changes. That was obviously non-functional, so they suggested a majority, supermajority process. And every state had to ratify that new process before it became the process. So they didn't make any changes at the convention. They were within their authority at the convention. And now come forward to the modern day convention. First of all, you mentioned the idea that it says Congress shall call. And that's legal language. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you made the distinction. I, if I need an engineer, I'm going to call you. You can call me as a constitutional lawyer. When you say shall in a document like that, and especially of that era, using the language of that era, that's called ministerial or secretarial language. What it means is they have a mandatory duty to do what it says, and then it defines what a call is. Specifically, it says, name the time and place. And so they have a ministerial, secretarial duty to name the time and place of convention. That's their only authority, and anything else runs counter to the idea of why that second clause of Article 5 was put in. Unless, of course, the framers were sloppy and stupid and silly and just didn't understand what they were doing, there were expert legal draftsmen, a lot of them in that convention, Every word is in place for a reason. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew that they were entirely routing around Congress when they did that. And then I would also just use history as a guide. 11 conventions before 1787, approximately 30, 31 cents. So we're finding more every now and then. Not Article 5 conventions, to be clear, but what are interstate conventions, conventions of states. There's never been a runaway convention. There's never been delegates who exceeded their authority. It's not human nature. When you authorize people to go do something solemn like this, they live within the bounds of their commission. So I'm not worried about a runaway at all. And then the last thing I would say to deal with the runaway is it takes 38 states to ratify. That means only 13 states required to stop anything. That means in our case, the 13 most conservative states in the United States of America. And if you know how a state legislature works, it means only one house in each of the most 13 conservative states in America. And the challenge I would give to anybody who's concerned about this legitimately, think of the amendment you don't like, and then give me a list of the 38 states that will ratify it. And I've been making that offer for nine and a half years publicly. I've made it on the Salcedo show. I made it on Shapiro and Levin and Beck and 
and anywhere else you can imagine. Millions of people. And I generally give out my private email address. I'll give it now. It's mmechler at cosaction.com. And I have received a sum total in nine and a half years of exactly zero emails telling me what amendment they were worried about enlisting the 38 states. Let's uh, try to keep the questions a little succinct. We have a lot more to get to. Go ahead. Debbie Bowers, Collin County. Coming up. Nervous. I'd just like your feedback on that. They're trying to get rid of Trump, as you can see, which says... Just like your feedback. You mean on the election? On 2024. On 2024. Uh, well, President Trump is the only declared candidate at this point. Uh, I do know that there is unanimity in the Uniparty. Uh, there, the, the majority of the, I don't want to say majority, uh, a good number of Republicans are unified with Democrats to make sure that President Trump doesn't get on the ticket. That's why they're raiding his home. That's why they're putting, why the FBI is putting photos of uh, cocktail napkins and uh, official top secret classified dinner menus and mementos <laughs> that the, the former president took and why the FBI is choosing not to put sensitive compartmentalized information that Beijing Biden has been storing in his home. And yeah, where, where is the photo of, of Joe Biden's classified information for all of us to see? And there, there's, there's a reason why this all ties into yeah. what we're talking about yeah. tonight. The guardrails that used to protect us from a runaway FBI, a runaway DOJ, a runaway Treasury Department, a runaway IRS. They are gone, courtesy of those who don't want to see an America First agenda ever return to the White House. So that's another reason why Convention of States must be, must take place to give we the people the mechanism to reign in a government that has grown beyond the consent of the governed. Yeah, and I would just add, Convention of States activists are involved in securing elections all over the country. And so they're involved as, especially here in Texas, this team is leading the way here in Texas. Uh, and and what we did in, in Houston, in Harris County, was phenomenal. Ongoing. Yeah, ongoing right now, especially Harris County. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people involved in election integrity. That's going to be spreading all over the state. Are you involved with the, the lawsuits too? No, we didn't do any the of the lawsuits. Mo the most lawsuits yeah. in Texas history are happening right now in Harris County because it was a crooked election down there yeah. and everybody knows it. Yeah. So I, I think you're right to be worried, but instead of just being worried, go get involved. Get involved if you already are with Convention of States. Get involved in the election integrity stuff. I would say we should all be paying close attention to that. I am worried about it, but I, I'll be honest with you. I'm less worried than I was in 2020. I'm less worried than I was in 2022 because we are actually getting better at watching for this stuff and understanding it. Uh, the last count I had, I don't have a, a recent count, but in at least 18 states, there are at least 38 pieces of legislation passed to lock down the elections. We need to do a lot more of it, but we need to be individually involved as election workers, poll workers, election judges, observers, whatever we can do personally, we got to be engaged in that. Very concerned about Arizona, too, yeah. about what's been going on out there. And if you have friends in Arizona or you have a little spare time to, to devote to your friends out in Arizona, they need some help. Uh, we're seeing this whole signature verification thing happen that happened in Georgia happen out there. I, we just pray for Carrie Lake, her team. I just got on the phone with them a couple days ago. It is... It's pretty raunchy out there. So you're right to be concerned, but be determined. Yep. Go ahead. 
Hi, gentlemen. My name is Lisa Bryan, and I am the CEO and owner of CBI Creative Business Insights. And my focus is on marketing. And particularly, we're trying to create a brand of, of a rekindling of patriotism and honor and duty and value systems. So in marketing, when you create a brand, you think of the opposite and you create that too so that you've got your opposite in line with what you're doing. And I think one of the reasons that we have so much trouble in our society is we have so divided their side and our side instead of looking at the truth in both sides and somebody coming up with a brand that appeals to to kind of both. And I know that sounds like it's an oxymoron, but there is a shadow side to our society, and that's what the left got hold of, is all the things that we've done wrong as a country, and they celebrated that. So my question is, what are we doing to unify and bring in the opposite point of view so that we have um, healing that we are the banner of instead of the division that we're still fighting. Isn't that American? Isn't that the unifying brand? It, the, I was, we, we were saying the pledge. The, there's a reason why the American flag in certain government-ed classrooms has been replaced by other flags. Because the American flag stands for everybody. That's a unifying flag. That's your brand. The Constitution is a unifying document. That's your brand. Yeah, and I would add, we should not, and this might not be popular, but we shouldn't overdo the idea of unity. I gave a brief primer earlier on the idea that America's never been a united country. Right there, There's... Events around which we've united, 9-11, I would say World War II, sort of the defining, uniting event in American history. But mostly we've been a divided country. And that's not a problem, provided that we're allowed to live in a way that allows us to live that out. So in other words, if Washington, D.C. isn't pushing stuff down on us all the time, Texas can be Texas and California can be California. And that's necessary in a country of 300 million plus people. Now, this many people are going to have a lot of different viewpoints. I mean, when I say diversity, I'm not talking skin color. I'm talking about just the way we think as people, right? People are different. People are different regionally. Uh, they're different state to state, sometimes city to city, big city versus uh, small towns and countryside. And so that, that kind of diversity of culture and of thought, I think, is very healthy if it's given a framework in which it can thrive. And so I'm looking less for unity, e pluribus unum, and more for a loose framework in which we can coexist. And the, the Constitution is that. That's correct. That's that federalism that we talked the about. The Constitution is that. And you, know, you, and, you know, being different is okay, boys and girls. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, uh, my name is Nate Weymouth. Uh, thank you. I appreciate y'all speaking tonight. Uh, my question is about the First Amendment. Do you believe that the government tried to suppress First Amendment rights on Twitter by influencing censorship? I also want to put out a plug. Mark, you were talking about George Mason. 
Well, my great-great-grandfather is Patrick Henry. I'm on the board of Red Hill, and I'm trying to put a book together about how influential Patrick Henry was getting the Bill of Rights added to the Constitution. And I think people need to understand the history of how that came about with the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Yeah, I love that. I got a, a quick Patrick Henry story most people don't realize. Uh, you know, Henry and Madison were arch rivals. Yeah. And uh, really, I think it was more Madison. <laughs> Madison really didn't like Patrick Henry. Madison wrote everything down. He was just meticulous note taker, as we know from his notes at convention. If he was going to give a speech, he was not known as a great public speaker. He had a weak voice. He was small in stature. And Henry was exactly the opposite. He never wrote anything down. He never planned out any of his speeches. And it just drove Madison crazy. Like He just thought it was sloppy and showy and... Patrick Henry was such a good speaker. You know the give me liberty or give me death speech, the oh, famous yes. speech that we all know, House of Burgess. So you know that we don't actually know what that speech said. And the reason we don't know is they hired a few note takers to take notes of his speech during that speech. And when he gave the speech, he was so mesmerizing, none of them wrote anything down. <laughs> so they all had to do it from memory. Uh, but... I think uh, so. I think he is one of the amazing stellar figures of the American Revolution. Uh, I think it, he's really important. I'm glad you're writing a book on that. And you had a question. I, I got so enamored with Patrick Henry, I forgot the question. Uh, but we are about the, the suppression of free speech. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think it's a question anymore. I think there's a question of legal doctrine. So you've got what you'll hear is it's a private company and they can do whatever they want. So now you get government involved in pressuring a private company to do stuff. There's, there's something called in First Amendment theory, this is not really broadly in the law yet, there are some cases called state actor theory. And what it says is if a state is, is having an, another entity, a private person or an organization do that which they couldn't do under the First Amendment, that private person or that, uh, that per, uh, actor, that company, becomes the state for purposes of that action. So I, in my personal opinion, we've crossed well into that territory with what Joe Biden and the government were doing uh, in regard to Twitter and Facebook and these other entities. I think you're going to see some really interesting development in the area of First Amendment law. And outside the, the legalese, I will say definitely your federal government conspired to steal your First Amendment Absolutely. rights of speech. Yeah. And it's illegal and it is wrong, and they deserve to pay a hefty price for it. Yep. We got time for uh, for one or two more. Okay. And, uh, we have to wrap it up. Hopefully, you guys can stick around for a few minutes. Absolutely. You're going to have to shout really loudly. Whoop. Take that back. There we go. Anthony Russo uh, hosts a couple of political shows. I actually you did a great job explaining the, um, I guess, the elevator pitch behind the Constitution of States or Convention of States, the question that I had to follow that, because that was kind of what I have, but my followers are always asking, I hear of it, what do we do, how do we do it? You described it, but what I still feel is missing, because I've tried to get involved at a local level, and we asked the question, what do we do? It's like a team saying, let's go win the game, right. but I don't know what the plan is, and I don't know how to explain it, and that's why I didn't get more involved, and I would love for a call to action for those people that are looking to get involved. We say, let's get involved, but we don't necessarily know the, the roadmap behind it. So would you have a good explanation that I can share with my followers and obviously people here? What do we do? Yeah, and so, look, if you go to our website, uh, there is a map, literally, which is you 
First, you fill out the petition. So that sends your support to your state legislators. And even in a past state, this is really important. And here in Texas, we're working to remove the sunset clause. They have a sunset clause in there. So once you do that, you've signed the petition. The second step, if you want to get involved, is there's a take action tab. You're asking, what's the action? Yeah. So click on the take action tab. And the take action tab will show you everything that Convention of States volunteers do. All the different positions that they do, all the different actions that they take. And then you can choose one of those that seems appealing to you, you know, whether you got 10 minutes a week or 20 hours a week, some people put in more, you pick a position or you just say that the simplest one is I want to volunteer. I want to be a grassroots volunteer. You'll get contacted by the state team and the local team and they'll plug you in in a way that suits what you do. You know, you, you sound like you have a couple of shows. You said you got followers, you're a media person. So there's always a need for content creators. We call media liaisons who know how to talk to the media, talk in the media. And so there is a pathway through there. There's a complete training called Convention of States University. You can go through every single thing we do is documented in there. The training's in there and there are people to help you. And that's, that's really organized stuff. And I, as also in your position, when, I, when folks call up and say, what do I do? The first question I ask them, who's, what's the name of your representative in Austin? Right. I don't know. <laughs> I say, that's step <clears throat> yes. one. Right. Who's your senator? I don't know. That's step two. Get in touch with those offices. Tell them you want them to support Convention of States. You're organizing in your community. And you just want them to know you're organizing in your community. And bring a couple of your friends. Uh, Point them to Convention of States website. Get people educated in your own personal sphere. And then make some phone calls. Let them know that it's on your, get it on their radar. And take those little steps. Let your representatives know that you expect them to represent you. And there are some COS leaders here in the audience tonight. They'll be out in the lobby afterwards. They're wearing their badges and stuff. And so you can ask them if you want to get involved. Perfect. Thank you very much, Thanks, guys. Man. All right, we're going to do one last question, and we'll uh, wrap things up here. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Linda Nelson. I am from the great state of Texas that actually has its own pledge, and I am from Collin County, one of our red, st- uh, red counties. Woohoo! Yeah, right? My question is going to come in a slightly different direction. I... I'm all for it. I think this is great, wonderful effort. But it requires states to be engaged. States have stood down, except for perhaps Texas and perhaps Florida. I'm proud that we have a great attorney general in this state that has not been afraid to fight the battle with the federal government. So with this convention of states or without, states must stand up and fight back against the federal government on the border, on immigration, on welfare, on debt, on gold bullion depositories. So I guess I'd ask you to kind of speak to that. There's a number of things that states can do while we wait for the convention. That's my question. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And so if you look at all the states, all the states across this nation, every state has a convention of states leadership team in it. Uh, They're in their state legislatures right now. They're working on a lot of other things other than Convention of States. In fact, it's funny. We redesigned our buttons about five years ago. If you see people wearing the buttons, at the bottom it says it's more than a convention because it's not just about calling a convention. That's not enough, and we shouldn't be waiting. We can fight more than one fight at a time. And so that's why Convention of States activists are in legislatures all across the country doing things like trying to push legislation fighting against childhood mutilation, this transgender madness, uh, fighting against open borders, fighting for 
uh, ballot and election integrity, fighting for property tax reform, fighting any of the major issues you can think that conservatives are fighting for. Convention of States activists are in their legislatures fighting for those things. You know, I, you, you brought up, you said a word that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up right now, and that is the border. And I got to tell you, I, I've been on some calls recently. I've been talking about what's going on on the border. I know you know a lot about what's going on on the border. You've been down there. I'm just going to tell you that whatever you think you know about go, what's going on on the border, I don't care how much you know. I found out stuff just in the last couple of days, and I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about it. It's way worse than you know. And I'm going to tell you that our federal government, is this is not an accident. This is an intentional invasion. Uh, and it's not just created by our federal government. I'm going to say something that might not be popular in here, but I don't say things to be popular. Our governor is responsible for the invasion at our southern border right now. Our legislature is responsible for the invasion at our southern border right now. And these men and women better get off their backsides or we, the people, are going to have to do something about it ourselves. And we're going to have something coming up on this. Uh, we're going to light some fires in Austin. I don't mean that literally, metaphorically. <laughs> we're going to light some fires that in Austin. That was a figurative yes. lighting of fire. Yeah. and we, But we're, we're going to move these folks to action. I mean, this is a situation where they're going to act or we, the people, are going to act. Are you with me on that one? Uh, Sheriff Brad Coe contacted the show he has put out an ask to 400 counties saying he needs help he has barricades military style barricades in front of his community schools that's how bad it is stores are running out of supplies because everything goes to the illegal aliens who joe biden and mitch mcconnell and john cornyn have allowed to come into this state texas has the largest land border uh with the state of mexico and it is it is devastating to our state that's number one. Number two, uh, Militia called up the show just the other day. We're just waiting to be activated. Can we get a call? I asked Sheriff Coe on Newsmax, can you, what can you do? He says, I can deputize. There's a guy, there's a guy that's in the audience uh, who runs private security. He says he could help get them all background checked and ready to go and ready to serve. I don't think the people in the Texas legislature realize how fed up we are about this. And I think they're about ready to find out. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.